Listen, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. If you're in the room today with us, thank you for being here. Let me just hear from you really quick. Thank you for being here face-to-face. If you're watching online, thanks for tuning again this morning as well. We're really thankful to be with you in whatever venue you're in, whatever place that you're in. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it's an honor. I'm really grateful to be on the stage with you this morning as we open up God's Word and allow Him to teach us something new today to grow us and to transform us. And today, as you just saw, we're starting a brand new sermon series called Moving Beyond Me. And what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is the transformative power that comes from seeing beyond ourselves and recognizing that the extent to which we embrace a humble position in the world allows us to experience the fullness of life that God wants for us. It's a key, and they're connected to one another. I would argue this is one of the most important sermon series we have ever preached from a pulpit in this room or in our traditional sanctuary. I just really feel this is so important because at the heart of The majority of our relational conflict, our our personal dysfunction, or our spiritual stagnation is this. It's a self-centered nature, a desire to only care about selves. So I want to invite you this morning, if you'd like to scoot your toes back under the chair, feel free to do so, because I I feel like I'm going to step on a few this morning, and here's the reason I know why, is because mine are black and blue from this entire week in preparing for this weekend's message. Because everything we're going to talk about today, I believe, is something that is a reality for us within our current culture, more than maybe we would like to even admit. If we're honest, we operate most days as if the world revolves around us, our wants, our desires, our needs, the things that we text and tweet and post and comment and decisions that we make. We don't think about how they affect people around us. And you can see how this way of living has the potential to destroy a marriage or cripple a family or tank a business or crush a spirit or corrupt a community. When we live in this kind of manner, it has a way of doing all kinds of damage. So maybe this morning, here's my, my prayer and my goal, that this discussion together, you might see as a gift to you you might see as a means of grace from God to allow you and me and every one of us to move beyond ourselves, to see outside of self. Now, you may not know this about me, but I'm a bit of a thespian. Uh, In high school, why is that funny? Uh, When I was in high school, I was an athlete. I played football in the fall and I ran track in the spring. Each and every year, that's what I did. And to be very honest with you, I hated track. The only reason I ran track and I pole vaulted was because it kept me in shape for the sport that I really cared about. Like when the fall would roll back around and football would start once again. Well, all throughout high school, this is kind of my cadence and the things that I did. In my senior year of high school, I didn't think I was going to play uh, sports in college or football in college. So I decided that 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 spring I was not going to run track. I was going to do something else. So I know it sounds like a Disney movie, but I decided to try out for the high school musical at my school. (laughs) Why is this funny? So I decided this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to try out for it. So sure enough, I went, I brought my guitar, and I sang, and I tried out for this whole thing. And to my surprise, I landed the lead male role in the musical Cindy, which was like kind of this modern-day telling of the story of Cinderella. And I was Lucky, who was the best friend of Cindy, but I was secretly in love with her. So throughout the whole musical, I sang with gusto, and I danced with humiliation. If you'd like to see the videos, I will not show you. But my shining moment was at the very end of the show when Cindy and I shared a kiss. 
Now, the weekend of the show came, and we had like four or five different shows during that weekend, and it was so much fun. Everything had gone so great, and it was a total blast. And one of the funnest things about all of it was I was in this musical with one of my best friends. His name's Zach. And Zach, I think, was like statue number two or something like that in the, in the, the play. And at the very end, the very last show that we have, he came up to me and said, hey, Trevor, listen, I dare you this last time to like really kiss her. So I take every dare very seriously. And so I gave it little thought and I said, I'll do it. So sure enough, the, the last number came where we're gonna share the big kiss and then sing this heartfelt duet afterwards. And so we leaned in and I planted one on her. And instantly, she went bored straight in my arms. And she began to laugh through the entire last song. And we do have this on video, I can prove it. It was one of my finest moments, to be honest with you. And though I must say today, if Cassandra, you're out there, I'm very, very sorry. But there was this moment on stage in front of everyone with all eyes on stage, all the lights on where I thought to myself, this is it. Like my big moment. The, the thing I've always been waiting for, I commanded attention, I basked in its glow. And the truth is that many of us, this is how we live our life. Like for me, it was this one instance in time, and for a lot of us, if we're really, really honest, this is how we live our life. We live our life as if we are on one big stage, and we're all competing to be best actor, best actress, to have the one moment where everyone would, would take attention and see us for who we really are. And our platforms vary from this from a lot of different places, from social media posts that beg for attention, to manipulative um, interactions that push other people down while we lift ourselves up. We find all kinds of ways for us to live on the stage. And I would argue this morning, in order for us to move beyond me, we must first recognize that life is not a stage and you don't have the lead role. This life that you live is not a stage and you are not the lead role within it. This may blow your mind, but the world is populated by nearly 8 billion people. Billion. That's a lot of people. And within the world... They all have their own hopes and dreams and desires, each and every one of them. And you are but one of those, a very small fraction of the created universe. But maybe even that concept is far too cosmic for you to kind of move attention from yourself. So let's get even smaller. Even within your family system, within your friendships, within your communities, within your church, you are but one of the multifaceted moving parts. And certainly you are an individual but you're still a part of a whole. You're a part of a story that's being told and how you interact with those parts around you has a profound impact on the person that you become. It has a profound impact on the people around you and who they become as well. When we live our lives as if we are the lead actor and everyone else is just supporting cast, then we rob ourselves from the true life that God wants for us to live and the way he's intended for us to live. And just to be honest, this is not a new struggle. Like this is not a new thing that we're talking about. Certainly it's been exacerbated in all kinds of ways by the rise in social media and so-called influencers, as well as interacting technologies that can offer us our 15 minutes of fame. But in the end, the shift to the me culture began a long, long, long time ago. Far before you and I were ever even here. I would argue that the scriptures give us a framework for us to understand all of our life. Anything that we can wrestle with, anything that we can struggle with, it tells the story of 
created history and it shines light on our dysfunction, if we can see it more than we read the Bible, the Bible reads us. It tells us things about ourselves. See, in the very beginning of the Bible, we are told that the beginning of this whole story is with a relational and creative God who makes everything. He makes all of creation. And this entire universe is made because he wanted to, he desired to. And the one entity in the entire universe, God himself, who was rightfully able to be self-centered and self-focused, is the one person who instead creates humankind to share himself with. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we are told that we lived in perfect connection with him. Perfect connection with God. Perfect connection with creation. Perfect connection with one another. We entered into an ever-giving, ever-receiving relationship that God had enjoyed for eternity past between Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No stage. No lead role. No spotlight. And God creates humankind. However, if you know the story in Genesis chapter 3, it tells us there's a major shift that begins to happen from where we began. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 through 10, here's what it says. When the woman who saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye, you see, God had created boundaries for his creation. You can go anywhere within this garden, take part in anything but this one tree. And this is where temptation begins. The fruit of this tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Here's how Adam responds. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. You see, until verse six here in chapter three, God had provided every need for humankind. They found all of their fulfillment through connection with him. And this temptation that is introduced by this serpent in the garden, as the story goes, is, is to believe that God is somehow holding out on them. That even though he's provided everything for you, even though he's made all of this for you to enjoy, except for this one tree, God somehow is holding out on you. There's more to life than just relationship with him. And so this fruit that they eat is simply a representation of all of the constant search that we have, looking for something else apart from God. In fact, just in verse six, here's what the serpent promises them. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You have a knowledge that you don't have in and of yourself right now. That was the promise. You see, Satan has an old bag of tricks. He's used them from the very beginning. And he uses them still today. And you know why? It absolutely works. It works. It's the same thing over and over again. You don't need God. You could be a God yourself. You know how to live your life. You know what's best. Who cares what God says, the boundaries he's placed for you? Who cares what anybody else thinks? You just need to live your own life. 
Do what makes you happy. Just be true to yourself. Follow your heart on and on and on. In modern terms, here's what this temptation sounds like. Me, 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 me. I, I, I. It began in Genesis 3, but it's been going on all throughout human history. As soon as these first humans eat this fruit, the Bible says that their eyes were open and they recognized that they were naked. Now, I want to be very clear here. This is beyond just a physical sense. The writers of Genesis is not just trying to say these people were naked and they say they took these leaves and they covered themselves. It's meant to say also from a spiritual, emotional, relational standpoint as well. They were vulnerable. And up until this point in time, that was not a problem. To be vulnerable before God and vulnerable before one another. But now there's this new inward focus that has taken place. This new inward understanding, a new orientation, they became ashamed and they covered themselves. And then the Bible says that when God comes into the garden looking for a man and woman in the cool of the day, which would have been the time they would have walked together in perfect relationship, now instead of finding them, the Bible says what? They have hidden. And some of the saddest words in all of scripture are written here in verse 10. They were afraid and so they hid. And we have been hiding ever since, from the very beginning. We have a two-year-old daughter named Murray, and she loves to draw. She loves to color, and she's actually really artistic. She does not get it from her mother and I. I don't know where it comes from, but, but she loves to do it. And so we have wanted to feed this interest. So we've bought coloring books and markers and colored pencils and stickers and so forth, and we have this one place she can do this. There's a table in the middle of our living room. We tell her, if you want to color, if you want to have fun, you can sit right here at this table. We'll provide for you everything you need, the paper, the plethora of coloring utensils. And so I was home just a few days ago, and so sure enough, she wanted to color. And so I sat her down at the table, gave her everything she needed, and sure enough, she began to sing and create and just enjoyed herself. But within a few minutes, I noticed that things had gotten very quiet. If you're a parent in the room, you know that kind of silence, right? Something terrible has happened. So I went to the living room to look for her, and she was gone. So we started walking around the house looking for her, calling her name. We could not find her, could not find her, until I finally came into the sunroom in the back of the house, and I saw her little head poking above a couch in the far corner. So I walked around the corner, and there she was, clutching a marker with a beautiful mural all over the wall. It was actually really good, but not an appropriate place for the mural to be, to be drawn. And so we said to her, Murray, what are you doing? And here's what she said. I hide in. Like, I bet you are. <laughs> because you know what you've done is not the appropriate place for this to be done. And so you hid. You see, we, we hide out of guilt. We hide out of shame. We hide out of pride. We hide to protect ourselves. Adam and Eve did it, and we do it every single day. You see, what takes place in the Garden of Eden, what takes place in my sunroom at my house, is the beginning of the endless destructive effects of something called sin. Sin. It's a hiding and a turning away. The ancient church father, Augustine, he expressed it this way. He called it in Latin, incurvatus in se, a turning in on oneself. See, as Adam and Eve 
turn away from God, it's the first domino to fall that leads to others and yet others and others. And we're no longer turning away just from our creator, but we're now turning away from creation itself. We're turning away from others, ourselves, and we make sure that we hide. We protect ourselves. And it's a focus on self. So there's this husband who's searching for gratification and seems to have found it on the computer screen. And it's kept hidden and it's secret. There's this promise of fulfillment and yet when it comes, it comes at a great cost. It ignores the fact that in this life, it's not a stage and you're not the center part of the play. There's much more going on around you and people who are affected as well. And there's this wife who begins to believe that she's in competition with other women in her neighborhood. So she posts carefully crafted pictures and near poetry about her perfect family, perfect kids, perfect house, perfect pets. But the more she formulates this outward appearance, the more she has to make sure that she turns in on herself and protects the real struggles and the things that are actually going on. There's this friendship where both persons used to be equal in their giving and their receiving, they would share struggles and carry one another's burdens. But recently it's become apparent that the conversation has gone from being about both to now being dominated by one side. Where there was once like a common goal of growth, now there's a single routine that's begging for applause every single day. There's this kid in this family who doesn't seem to understand that he is only one part of the family unit. He dominates attention. He demands a, a list of wants and needs. He's become so committed to his own performance that he doesn't realize there's other actors on the stage as well. It's a turning in on oneself. Incurvatus in se. Me, me, me. I, I, I. If you want to live the life that is promised to us in Christ, we must move beyond me. We must begin to see people around us, the world around us in a new way. The Bible is committed to addressing this self-centered way of life. I think it's because the writers know it is our greatest limiting factor to living the life that God has for us. It is the one thing that will always get in the way. Paul writes about it in this way as he pens a letter to the early church in Philippi. He's speaking directly to the propensity for people to care about only themselves and have an inward focus. In Philippians chapter two, verse three, here's what Paul writes to them. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Before we go anywhere, verse or chapter two, I want you to see all of what he says here is based around this one idea. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Then he says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he describes that mindset. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to what? Death. Even death on a cross. So Paul begins by saying, listen, I want to say one thing to you, early church. Don't miss this in Philippi. 
Don't live with selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, get rid of the me, me, me. Close the curtain. Reverse the inward turn. His appeal is to humility and value, not just for yourself, but for those around you. Paul says this is not an option for you who are followers of Jesus. In fact, it's fundamental to living the way of Jesus. So he says instead, here's what you must do. You must have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul says, you want to know what it looks like? Look at Jesus, who was in fact God. He didn't see it as something to hold tightly to, that power, but instead he, he, he let go of it. And instead he began to humble himself. He gave it up. He became vulnerable. He had an outward approach to those he loved. He laid aside heaven. He came to earth as a human, and not just any human, but a servant. He took on the position of least power, least position, the one who would wash the dirty feet of those who might come into the home. This is who Jesus became. The Bible seems to suggest that the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, was God's answer to this problem of sin. If sin really truly at its heart is a turning inward, a focus on self, then what Jesus does is the exact opposite. He gives it all up and he opens himself that we might experience newness of life. So even though we have the tendency to think about ourselves, even though we constantly turn towards ourselves, even though we tend to value ourselves more than anyone else, Jesus Christ became God with skin on gave up his life so that you and I can move beyond ourselves. In this mindset of Jesus Christ that Paul talks about, in a word, it's this, humility, an outward turning, as opposed to an inward turning. Shane Claiborne, a Christian speaker, author, and activist, writes this in his book, The Irresistible Revolution. Here's what he says. He spent time in India serving alongside of Mother Teresa in the slums of Calcutta. And when he comes back to serve in the States again, here's what he writes. He said, I saw a woman in a crowd as she struggled to get a meal from one of the late night food vans. When we asked her if the meals were really worth the fight, she said, oh yes, but I don't eat them myself. I get them for another homeless lady, an elderly woman around the corner who can't fight for a meal. I saw a street kid get 20 bucks panhandling outside a store and then immediately run inside to share it with his friends. We saw a homeless man lay a pack of cigarettes on the offering plate because it's all he had. I met a blind street musician who was viciously abused by some young guys who would mock her, curse her, and one night even spray Lysol in her eyes as a way of a practical joke. As we held her that night, one of us said, there are a lot of bad folks in the world, aren't there? And she said, oh, but there are a lot of good ones too. And the bad ones make you, the good ones, seem even sweeter. We met a little seven-year-old girl who was homeless, and we asked her what she wanted to do when she grew up, and she paused pensively, and then she replied, I want to own a grocery store. We asked her why, and she said, so I can give out food to all the hungry people. He writes, Mother Teresa used to say, in the poor, we meet Jesus in his most distressing disguises. And Shane Claiborne closes by saying, now I knew what she meant. Now I knew what she meant. The way of Jesus is the way of vulnerability. Rather than protecting oneself, one's ego, 
one's power and turning in. We humbly look to serve those who are around us and beyond us. This humble nature that Jesus demonstrates for us results, the Bible says in Philippians. I love the way it says it. It results in his death. And then it says this, even death on a cross. Because it was one of the most humiliating and painful ways to die. Jesus' vulnerability led him to the cross. He was arrested and placed on trial because of someone he considered to be a friend. He was stripped naked and he was beaten with a cat of nine tails. He carried the wooden cross to Golgotha and once he was there, he was nailed hand and foot and lifted up as a warning to anyone else who would talk about some kind of other kingdom and a power other than Rome. This was an act of obedience on Jesus' part. He chose to do this. He laid aside heaven, laid aside glory, and he came to a broken world and allowed the end result of this interning, this sinful nature, to end his life. And it was a sacrifice to offer us a new way of living and existing in the world. See, Paul, Paul connects this and picks up on this theme and this idea as he writes also to the early church in Galatia. He sees the cross as not just the way that Jesus frees us from sin, but also the way in which we can begin to live selfless lives. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, here's what Paul writes. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul says, remember, remember how Jesus died on the cross? Remember he gave himself up for you? Paul says, just like that, anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, you do the same. We are crucified with Christ so that now we no longer live, but Christ lives in us and through us. I've served in this church for 16 years, in other churches before this. Every conversation I've ever had with a student or with an adult who struggled living and following Jesus, it's always come down to their inability to embrace these two verses. The inability to lay self down, to die to oneself, because fundamentally at the, the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's this, submission. It's not about not doing all the bad things you shouldn't do. It's not about doing all the good things that you should do. It is simply about submitting to the way of Jesus, every part, all of who you are. We die to self because somehow, paradoxically, it's how we live the full life in Christ. Paul says this way, though. We have been crucified with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ, meaning this, it's participatory in nature. So as we take all the sinful areas of our life and we nail it to the cross, somehow God begins to fill us up with new life. As we continue to obey him, he continues to pour out. As we continue to say no to this, he begins to say yes to this. There's something that happens when we work in tandem with him, as we are crucified with him. And you can't measure this day to day. Some of the most frustrated people I know are Christians who day to day are like, how am I doing today? 
I've been crucified with Christ today. And the next day they struggle again. Oh, I haven't been crucified. And and it's just this, this ping pong ball, back and forth, frustrations. Here's the best advice I've ever gotten in my life. Don't look at your life in Christ from day to day. Look at patterns. Are your patterns changing? Are you learning better how to say no to the things we should say no to? And yes to the things that we should say yes to. Are you learning better how to recognize how you, the way you live, interact with people around you in your family, your communities, your churches? Are you recognizing the patterns beginning to change in your life? You are much more generous. You are much more loving. You are much more self-controlled. That's what we should pay attention to. Because the more we participate with Jesus, the more he works within us. Paul says it's like a crucifixion. It's like a death. We identify with Jesus' death and in such a way our old life, our old way of living, our old inward turned selves is nailed to the cross of Christ and we're given new life. When we find ourselves living selflessly, selfishly, as if life was a stage and as if we are the leads in every play, it's because we have failed to allow Christ to live through us and in us, and to die to ourselves. And here's why. It is really, really, really hard to do. Dying to self is one of the most difficult things we could ever do because it it feels opposite of our nature. And that's because the nature that we have post-Genesis 3 is never gonna lead us to seeing other people around us. It will always cause us to turn in on ourself. Christian author Henry Nouwen says it this way. I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there is something 10 times more attractive to choose. Saying no to my lust, no to my greed, no to the needs and the powers of the world takes an enormous amount of energy. The only hope I can find is to be so obviously taken by something real and attractive that I can devote all of my energies to saying yes to that. See, it is my love for my wife, my passion for my wife that causes me to nail my selfishness to the cross of Christ. It is my desire to make an impact in this community that causes me to nail my sinful self to the cross of Christ. It's my desire and drive to see justice in the world that causes me to nail my self-centered nature and attitude to the cross of Christ. Is there anything else that you love more than yourself? If there is, then love it so much that you would submit yourself to Jesus every single day. When I die to self, I die to whatever opinions, preferences, urges, and wills that do not align with Jesus. Those are the things that are gone. So I want to be clear about two things very quickly. Number one, dying to self is not self-sabotage. Dying to self is not self-sabotage. We can mistakenly believe that being crucified with Christ means that anything that is good in the world, anything that is pleasurable, anything that makes us happy can't possibly be a part of God's will. And so oftentimes I have friends in my own life who have self-sabotaged relationships, careers, friendships, financial investments, general joy in life because they believe that they're dying to self. Here's what I'm convinced of. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, 
He died so that you could come alive to your fullest, unique self. So if you live a life of obedience and faithfulness towards God, then you can enjoy all the good that's actually there. This is not a punishment. This is an opportunity. This is not a punishment. This is grace that we might die to our old way of living and come to life to all the newness that God has for us. God doesn't want to kill your unique you. He's created for you a reason, for a reason. He wants you to thrive. In fact, dying to these old way of living is the only true way to, to really, truly come alive. And lastly, dying to self is a daily practice. It's a daily practice, like brushing your teeth, hopefully. Like picking out the clothes you wore this morning. It is a daily practice. Every morning is a new opportunity once again to move beyond self and see those around us and to see God once again. And here's why. The Christian does not live on leftover faithfulness. We don't live on leftover faithfulness. It's a conscious choice each and every day. I mean, as a parent, trust me, this is a struggle to live the selfless life each day because when I get up in the morning and I wake my children up and get them ready for school and we come downstairs, I can feel the inward turning start to happen when I ask, what do you want for breakfast? And the same responses every single day, what do we have? Like it's the same thing we had yesterday and the day before and every other day before that. Just pick one. And I feel this struggle begin to rise up. Do I turn inward on self and see myself as the lead actor on this stage today? Do I see others around me, including my children? Temptation never sleeps. And every single day, there's new temptation that will raise its ugly head. We have to nail those things to the cross each and every day. Your friends will always annoy you. Your spouse will always anger you. Your boss will always enrage you, except for mine, of course. But each day, you need fresh mercies to help you move past yourself and see the world around you and see the life that Jesus offers you. You see, in the end, it is Jesus' broken body and his shed blood that gives us the power that we need to move beyond me. He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but instead he emptied himself, took on the form of a human, and not just any human, but a servant to come to live his life and ultimately to die for you and me so that we might move beyond our self-centered, inward-turned, sinful selves and become the people God truly wants for us to be. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you today and I want to be in first in line this morning to tell you, God, that I know that what we've talked about today is, is a difficult endeavor. It is not easy to live in such a way that we can serve and love others around us. It is not an easy thing to do to have you at the forefront of our mind and to put ourselves to the back. But I pray that today, God, that you might give us the power that we need through your sacrificial son to live our true selves, to live in service to others, full love in you. 
So God, I pray for every person here this morning. I pray that even now you might bring to their hearts a certain area of their life, family, community, church, workplace, maybe even internally, just within themselves, that you are wanting to move them beyond themselves. I pray you would call that out of them, God, in your most loving, gracious, and kind way. I pray that you'd invite us into a new way of living. Move us beyond me. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.